Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. Welcome to the very first episode of The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a classic film and explore its history, themes, filmmaking, and the influence it has on filmmakers today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing teacher in Los Angeles, California. Hi, I'm John Roca. I'm an actor and a voiceover actor as well here in Los Angeles, California. I also host a bunch of podcasts and uh, YouTube shows. A growing number of podcasts. It seems yes. like you're on podcasts almost every day. Yes, including this one. Yeah. yeah. And uh, when Steve proposed this idea to me, I was like, oh, yeah, this will be awesome. Because Steve and I always get into these incredibly long discussions about films. And Steve, you're, you're, what, what is your official title? Like, what, you teach, what do you teach and where? So I teach directing at the New York Film Academy. Okay. And I have a master's in film from USC. Yes. And I've been working as a filmmaker in documentaries and yes. narratives and web series for the last uh, 18 years. Yeah. And you just did a film. Oh, you, you've been, you were shopping a film recently, right? For the last year and a half, a documentary on the shark what was that called uh that's beyond the cage of fear right. and it's uh, uh a documentary about great white sharks it's actually aired all over europe and a little bit of asia yeah and is not aired in the united states right so we have some and and me obviously i've been in a in a, in a number of projects and i do a number of uh podcasts about film so and i'm on shows to talk about film and tv so we just thought we'd get this thing together and see what would come out of it um 
What is the basic? What is, do we want to tell them the point of this? Like, what's the premise of the show? So the idea of the cinephiles is to take one hour and dig deep into a particular classic film. And by classic film, we're meaning something that stood the test of time, that that we're not talking about last year's great movie. We're talking right. about established films and really dig deep into the time at which it was made, the directorial choices, performance, script, music, all the things that make that film great, right. and then move on to talk about the historical influence of this film, because these are the films that brought Hollywood to where it is today. Right, right. What, now, and we chose, uh, we, well, you want to tell them what the film is? So it was hard to figure out, okay, what's the very, very first film we want to <laughs> dig deep into? Yeah. And we wanted to do a film that, that was something special to us, and so we chose Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Harrison Ford. Yeah. So this is so I don't know how how did you first come to this film? Well, I, I mean it's it's a 1981 film, you know, uh, and I came to it when, as a kid because I had seen Star Wars and um, Empire Strikes Back. I think it was around the same time, wasn't it? Or was that 82? Comes out just after Empire. Just at, yeah, just after Empire. So so I had seen that in the theater. So when I saw the trailer for, and I imagine the trailer was probably in Empire Strikes Back, and I you know I I remember looking at my father going, we gotta we gotta go we gotta go. For nearly 3,000 years, man has searched for the lost Ark of the Covenant. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. Not something to be taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. Jones, do you realize what the Ark is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. Raiders of the Lost Ark. A film from Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. And so I saw it in the theater with my dad and my mom and uh, probably my brother as well. Um, and so, and you know, when you're like 12 years old, 11 years old, when this comes out, you're, you're like blown away at how amazing this film, because it's so much fun, even as a kid, you know, or even now, uh, it's so much fun uh, remembering it. How about you? So came out, I was 13 years old, and, uh -huh. you know, back in the day, we didn't have trailers going around, we didn't have Facebook, we didn't have all this stuff, so you knew what film was coming. So the first right. I heard about this movie was my sister's boyfriend's little brother. <laughs> okay. Right? And he comes, he says, dude, I saw this movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you gotta go see this. Now, at this point, I don't know what the Ark is, right. I don't know what they're rating, oh, yeah. I don't know anything about it, I've never seen anything. I said, well, what's the movie about? He said, well, it's like guys with machine guns fighting Nazis. And I went, okay, we're doing a Nazi fighting movie. <laughs> so without knowing anything, I yeah. go in to see this movie in the Cinema One in Larkspur. Where's Larkspur? Larkspur is in Marin County, which okay. is where George Lucas is, where Lucas Ranch is. So that's where they actually oh, nice. premiere a lot of Lucas films was at this theater. Oh, awesome. So I actually saw the world premiere of Goonies in that theater a couple of years later. Yeah. Strange claim to fame. Anyway, <laughs> go to see the movie. Have no yeah. idea what's about to happen. Right. By the end of the film, it literally feels like electricity is going over my entire body. Yeah. Like I could, because there had never been anything like that. Yeah. There had never been that experience. And as a comic book kid and a science fiction kid and a geek kid who read all this you know let's admit fairly crappy stuff yeah to see an elevated version of that of everything that i had loved yeah in a movie suddenly it's like my brain exploded well and i don't want to jump the gun i i saw it this morning and uh what you're talking about is perfect because it's based on lucas and spielberg have said in numerous interviews that it's based on those 1940s serial movies that they watched as kids that's right but this it struck me as i rewatched it again this morning because i hadn't seen it in two or three years um it's so much more detailed and intelligent and layered than any of those serial films that came, that they based it on, which I found 
that's the reason why people love it so much. It isn't a throwaway film. It's actually very inventive and very intelligent. And what they talk about uh, is stuff that you might have experienced in history class or even in religion, if you're, you know, that kind of stuff. I think that I think that's absolutely right. And yeah. the, to me, Spielberg and Lucas to Raiders is 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 very similar to Quentin Tarantino to the seventies films. Oh, okay. Which is that oh yeah. Which is that the here are these movie serials and I don't know if you've watched, you know, going back to the perils of Pauline or oh, yeah. or Flash Gordon or all the Buck Rogers, all these things. Yeah. They're fairly terrible. Yes, they are. <laughs> but when you're a little kid and watch that, that's the greatest thing in the world. And of course. I think and 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 the same is true if you watch the seventies black exploitation and lots of the kung fu films right. and all this stuff. They're actually mostly pretty terrible. Yeah. But you see them at a certain time in your life and they inspire you. And I think what Spielberg and Lucas are trying to do is very similar to what Tarantino has done, which is I'm going to make the platonic ideal. Yeah. I'm going to try to create the experience for the broad audience right. that I had as a little kid watching these serials. And you, and you see them using the pieces, them using the, the techniques of the serials and the ideas of the serials, but elevating them with great filmmaking, great acting, great yeah. music, great script, all that stuff. And suddenly, you know, you have this, what I think is actually a revolutionary movie. Well, and it's really interesting because you don't get a lot of background. And I agree with you. Revolutionary is actually a very good word to describe this because you don't get a lot of background on Indiana. It's all shades. And you get nothing on Belloc. Uh, and nothing, and the Nazis are just built in to the whole situation. So it's it's interesting because it, it's the force of the personalities and the performances that make us uh, uh, dial into the movie. I mean, Marion is the daughter of the professor that taught Indiana. She, he gets introduced, but then he gets killed off in, in verbal con conversation. Uh, and she's you, they had some kind of relationship before you. You don't even know what relationship this was. It's up to your imagination. And I think that's what's so uh, so interesting about the film, where other films would fall apart at the lack of exposition. This film actually it charms you without it. And, and I think that's so surprising. Well, this film, it operates on an iconic level. It's not operating on a natural level. Yeah. And this, to me, is in stark contrast to what we have from Spielberg. If you look at Jaws, if you look at Close Encounters, those mm -hmm. are very much movies out of the 70s. Right. And they're very much movies where you have the experience of, of real life. In fact, what makes the shark so terrifying in Jaws is that the world that we're in is extremely recognizable as our world. When you're sitting on the beach, it's like a day on the beach. A right. normal day. Everything is normal. Right. And we take these normal characters. Roy Scheider's character is a very normal guy. Yeah. Richard Dreyfuss' character is a normal guy. Quint's not a normal guy. We put him aside <laughs> yeah. for the moment. And you put them in an extraordinary circumstance and ask them to do an extraordinary thing. You yeah. look at Close Encounters. I think Spielberg goes out of his way to make Richard Dreyfuss and his family life a completely normal, recognizable thing. Yeah. And then you place that character in an extraordinary circumstance. You get to Raiders, that's not true anymore. Yeah. This is not a normal world. This is an extraordinary world. It's an iconic world. And you have a not normal character. We meet Indiana Jones with a whip and a hat going after treasure, facing all these traps. We meet him in a completely extraordinary way. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and, that, and that's why I think this film, more than any other, is the beginning of the 80s. This oh. The rejection of this. We've, okay. okay. Between... Rocky and Jaws and Star Wars, we've moved out of the 70s. Yeah. And now, by the time we get to Raiders, it's like, okay, we moved into the 80s now. Yeah. Well, it's also, it's a fascinating thing to take a look at this film now as, an, as I watch it as an older, because there are, we have changed as a film going public and as a film, uh, film watching public. And so certain things 
pop out for me. And the treatment of Marion is an interesting thing. And I don't know if 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 we're if we if you're open to discussing this this I'm not open. To discussing <laughs> I believe in my contract. It said I would not discuss Marion. We will not discuss Marion. No, of but course. It's fascinating to watch her because I she's. She's introduced to us as this incredible badass just from the beginning. And I think every introduction of every character is so well done. Spielberg doesn't waste any time with it, just introduces you to their characters, gives you the overview real quickly. So you, okay, I can, I understand who this person is. This person's evil. This person is good. This person was in love. This person, this or that. And I love Belloc. Belloc is, is also an interesting complex character. But, uh, with Marion, she's introduced, she's doing the drinking contest. She defeats this huge guy. Uh, she's, she's, in Nepal, where's the bar? I forget what the bar Nepal. is. In Nepal, right? And so she's doing all that. So you're already introduced to this tough woman, but then throughout the film, it kind of alternates with her yeah. between the damsel in distress and the woman who can stand up for herself. And I and I found it at times a bit troubling because I was like, well, maybe that's just the '80s. They even dismiss her, like when they think she's dead. He says, oh, you know, Indiana says to her, says to Sala, like, ah, uh, uh, Marion is dead. And Sala goes, yes, I've heard. But life goes on, Indy. You have to do this. And I'm just like, this is fascinating to me. One of his kids who could have died, and I guarantee you Sala wouldn't be like, hey, the life goes on. So I find this interesting, the way they treat her. And then she's constantly in a dress, like in a white dress, a virginal dress, even though she's essentially a tomboy. I, what did you think watching it again? I mean, I think this is this is the uh, the puzzle that filmmakers are still trying. You look at yeah. you know, Lois Lane in the recent Batman Superman. Yeah. It's a similar situation where we... We're saying this character is a badass, right. but then we're placing her in the situation where she's a victim who needs to be rescued. Yeah. And we haven't figured out how to get away from this. It's really, you know, and part of it is because who are the people making these films? Right. The guys. Yeah. You know, I mean, w we had to give them credit yeah. that in 1981, they introduced this character and her introduction is fantastic. It's so great. It's so great. And you see moments of that toughness. Yeah. Apparently just connected to her raging alcoholism <laughs> um, because the best moments of her at the drinking contest and then with Bella getting him drunk, it's like, okay, so if we're going to list this character's superpower, it will be unbelievable tolerance for alcoholic beverages. <laughs> she does. She could put anybody under the table. And, but to maintain perspective, yeah. she does, she as drunk as she, or as, as much as she drinks, she's never out of control drunk she's always focused on what she's doing uh, in the fight in the bar when we see her introduced when she's fighting the german the nazis and uh, i forget the character's name oh, i have it written down do you do you know the nazi guy's name oh, i forget the, right. the 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 peter lorry gestapo <laughs> yes like, that guy right, so let's take a moment yeah to, sure to reference like this is a this is a perfect version of the elevating the movie serial cheesy villain to the to the platonic ideal of the character. Yes. Because he walks in with that voice and that look and yes. everything about him and you go, yes. I'm, I'm yeah. in. I know that yeah. you're a dangerous person. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to go back just to the yeah, sure. drinking contest for a moment. Okay. Because, you know, people talk about when they talk about uh, oneers, they talk about uh, Steadicam shots. They talk about things like that. Yeah. They always, we always go to Goodfellas. We go to <clears throat> Rope. We go to the oh, player. Yeah. We go to those kinds of shots. Right. And people don't really pay attention to this drinking contest, which is also all in one shot. Yeah. And oh. is so subtle 
and so perfectly done because so so again to talk to talk a little bit about the filmmaking we got yeah. all these storytelling elephant elements we got back and forth in the drinking contest yes we have the reaction to the crowd we have Marion almost going out we yeah. have more reaction to the crowd we have her getting her strength back getting confidence challenging the other guy yeah the other guy takes the drink the crowd thinks that he succeeded and then he fails and the crowd is sad and then Marion has a reaction and if you were doing that you plotting out as a filmmaker well, how am I going to cover this cover right. means what angle I'm going to put the camera in. Yeah. You go, okay, well, I need close-ups. I need inserts. I need reaction shots. I need to go back and forth. And Spielberg doesn't do that. It's all in one shot. And the, the remarkable inventiveness in the way that he captures each one of those moments by these subtle camera moves, including, mm -hmm. for instance, the crowd's reaction. Rather than cut to the crowd, we see hands with money cross in front of Marion's face showing that they're, oh, they think they've won. No, they, they haven't. Right. And that's what you see throughout the whole film is the, the use of the camera to to and the and the clean cleanliness of the storytelling, which yeah. is what Spielberg is sort of the master of, yeah. um, in ways that yes, he's showing off a little bit, but it's also always serving the story. Yeah, yeah. I never feel like he's drawing attention to himself as a director, and that's the thing. That's the most brilliant thing about about Spielberg. Spielberg, uh, we love his movies. Um, and then we don't, but we, he's not necessarily someone we would say is an auteur, but yet you could make a strong case that he is because his films are so relatable. They're so connectable. They're so clean that you, you revere them for that, that logic. It, I mean, revere them for that reason. It's kind of difficult to be that kind of, you could say he's a pop filmmaker, but there's so much more going on if you really study and analyze his films. I took a whole course in at Florida State over the summer. I took one course, one elective. It was studying Spielberg films for three months. It was awesome. The, the, the book that he gave us, that he created himself, the teacher, was 287 pages. Wow. And you would have to, and read, and I got to explore, because I was like, oh, he's done Jaws, he's done this, he's done that. It was, these are fun films. But when you analyze the films, you're just like amazed at the symbolism that he is going for in just about every film and how much of the shades of his father and his mother are in this Absolutely. film, you know, in these films. And, and I think Indiana Jones, I mean, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark is, is that as well. You know, it's got a lot of those, like the sun, but one of my favorite shots is the sun as they're digging oh, for the ark. Fantastic. That's such a beautifully shot, uh, 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 sequence, you know, and you can see in that <laughs> shot in silhouette, Harrison Ford emerging from the, 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 the disguise he's been yes. wearing and you see the hat come out yeah. and you see like, Oh, he's returned. It's Superman taking off his shirt. You know, suddenly we're like, we've gone yeah. back to the superhero character. He's out yeah. of the disguise. Yeah. Just to back to the auteur thing. Yeah. Um, I, I, what always bothers me is that people seem to use those terms in regards to genre rather mm. than in regards to artistic control and artistic vision. Okay. So like, so you go, okay, I'm making a personal movie about myself and it's an indie film about, yeah. uh, you know, my drug addiction, my personal relationships, my relationships, with my right. father, I have complete control over that film. And you go, Oh, that guy's an auteur. Um, oh. But if someone goes, oh, I'm going to make this film that's all about my childhood love of these adventure stories and it's right. broadly popular, you go, oh, you're not an auteur. Okay. And it's like, as opposed to going, well, is this man in control of his medium? Yeah. Does he have a vision which he's bringing forth? The fact that that vision happens to be one that's popular to a broad audience doesn't change the work that he's doing, in Absolutely my not. opinion. Yeah. You know, and there's no question that Spielberg has a vision. Yeah. He has a way of looking at the world. And, and we see that way of looking at the world evolve over time. 
Um, yeah. In fact, what we see is when he tries to go back to do what he used to do when he was a younger man, he doesn't do it that well. Yeah. You know, is that that was this time in his life where he did this thing, yeah. you know, really, really well. Yeah, this is, and this is, and I hope I want to clarify, and I want to clarify real quick. I, I wasn't saying that he's not, right? I'm saying that he gets oh, that, he gets that, um, sometimes he gets that knock on him, that he is too much of a populist filmmaker. But I think he, he is absolutely, and when I use the term auteur, I always think of people like Fellini or right. that kind of, it's, it's, it's irrelevant to me whether they're personal films. To me, it's like, do you have a style that is classic, that is revered, that is something I can put my hands on and my mind around and I can understand? Like Tarantino to me is an auteur. Absolutely. And so, yeah, and I would definitely put Spielberg in that because it's very difficult to make these kinds of films and have them be beloved as much as they are and still stand the test of time. I mean, 2016, I watched it and had a blast watching it again, you know? And so that, that speaks to a real craftsmanship. And he definitely has that. Well, and if you look at what's really interesting, because if you've watched all of the endless behind the scenes and documentaries about the making of Jaws. Yes. And uh, because it is an endlessly fascinating film. And really you watch is. young Spielberg at the, in, during the making of that film, and you can see the weight of the world on him. Yeah. Because everything is falling apart. Shark's not working. He's trapped on this island. He's a beginning filmmaker. He's, you know, this could be the end of his career. It's right. all going to be a disaster. And you can feel that. If you watch on the Blu-ray, there's a bunch of behind the scenes, and one of them is like 50 minutes of just footage. There's no, it's not really a doc. It's just, wow. it's just you're just watching them make the film. And Spielberg is so loose and so relaxed and having so much fun. And what he says, which is interesting at one point, is he says, this is why they wanted to make this movie for a smaller budget than Close Encounters or Star Wars, is because they, he wanted to be able to be a little faster and looser right. and not have things be so precious. When you make money, make a movie for a big budget, well, everything's got to be right. Yeah. When the budget goes down, you have a little more freedom because the pressure's not as high. Yeah. And he is so relaxed and loose and detail-oriented. This is one of the things you know, I talk about because I teach directing yes. is... is He's not just going, go ahead and do it. He's yeah. talking to the actors about every single moment, every beat within their performance, where the camera is, where their eyeline is, in order to make it work just right. And you can see a guy, it's nice to see a relaxed, happy guy having fun who's in complete control of yeah. his medium, yeah. you know, while explosions are happening in 130 degrees in the middle of the desert. And he's still <laughs> having a good time. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's just a great point you bring up, Steve, because if we look at the history of Raiders of the Lost Ark, it came right after uh, Spielberg had his first misstep as a director in 1941, oh, yeah. and which was a huge budget. And a lot of famous actors at the time, a lot of good comedic actors, it was essentially an, a version of an Altman film because there were so many different characters. There were so many different storylines they were playing with. And he was trying to marry... 70s actors into 80s films like it was so fast like Slim Pickens what is he doing in a film like sure. 1941 plus you got Tachiro Mifune you got all this <laughs> yeah, 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 it's fascinating have you watched it recently by the way it, it, I don't think no no I have not nor uh, I don't know if I would put myself through it again I'm more of a masochist than you and I I, I, I watched it maybe a year and a half ago oh wow it's fascinating to watch because mm -hmm. you have all this talent you got John Belushi yeah, Dan Aykroyd, Dan Aykroyd. You, you got Tim Matheson Tim Math well, yeah. yeah unbelievable talent yeah and mm -hmm. you have Steven Spielberg, and there's things happening in the movie where you're going, this should be funny. Right. But it is not. No. It doesn't work. And, 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 and you know, and it's just, it's good to know your limitations. Yeah. Steven Spielberg can do funny things in a movie, but yeah. he cannot do a comedy. No. Not, the comedy is just a different, you know, a different uh, pace, a different speed. And he is not, he can have someone say something funny yeah. in a movie that's not a comedy. But when you're just like, the, the drive must be to have laughs. 
Gotta have a laugh. Gotta have a laugh. Gotta have... He can't do it. Yeah, I think when you're a nerd, you can't do a bro film. And when you're bro, you can't do a nerd film. No. You just don't understand the culture, the intricacies of the culture. I think it's very difficult. And I think that's what Steven was trying to do when you see the film. It feels like a bro film. And he's not a bro. Because no. he's because he's almost he's almost working against the jokes that would work in something like Porky's or something other some other film like that. He's almost going against it because his natural tendency is not to, to lean into a joke like that. It is to resist it. Right. Therefore, the film always feels out of... Like, I watched it 10 years ago on Comedy Central one time, and I, and it was and so out of step that you're just like, how how does this get away? It's and it's a guy at the top of his game. Yes. And this is the movie he makes. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, it's very strange. Yeah. But this is not the night. No, this is not the podcast. That's right. Podcast is, we, we could do that on the uh, the Cine Lost files. <laughs> oh, that'll be great. Later on. There we go. Um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, so back to Raiders. Yes. Uh, one of the things that occurred to me as I was watching it is that, in a weird way, Raiders of the Lost Ark predicts video game structure that hasn't been invented yet. Oh, fascinating. Because at the okay. end of each action sequence, you have to fight a boss. Uh, is that So you're in the bar, and oh, at the end, great. there's the big guy in the bar. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah you're, in the, you're in the marketplace, and you end up with the guy with the sword. With the sword, right. You're, in the, you're at the airplane, and you've got to fight the, the big guy there. Yeah. You're on the truck, and now the last guy is going to be the sergeant that climbs over the truck and has right. the fighter. And each one has a perfect structural build <laughs> wow. where, where, where Indiana Jones is doing really well. You're like, oh, this guy is awesome. Yeah. And then you get to the place where, uh-oh. Um, it's interesting. Of course, we all know the very famous story that there was choreography to fight the guy with the sword. Yes. Uh, yeah, and maybe he got you got sick or something. Yeah, yeah. Harrison Ford was sick. And there's footage of him practicing the choreography. Yeah. You could see where he's dodging and doing all this stuff. And then Harrison Ford on the day went, I'm just going to shoot him. Yeah. And it's one of the great moments in the film. Mm -hmm. So, and, and this also goes to St Spielberg being loose. Yeah. Even though he storyboards everything to the nth degree, he's willing when a better idea comes along to let go of it. And yeah. that, moment is one of the great moments of the film absolutely yeah. i remember watching that being like oh my god like you're just it was so logical yet so uh so surprising at the same time right because you're caught up in the fact that all these everything that has led up to that moment have been these extended fights so you think you're in for another one and it's just over that quickly well, and, and you're playing with film structure and film expectations the yeah. guy pulls out the sword yeah he spins the sword around <laughs> well now we're gonna have a big sword fight. that's right but you don't get that <laughs> It also points to the fact that Indiana Jones is not actually a nice guy. Yes, yes, we can, let's let's talk about that. Yeah, he's not really, even though he's so revered and everything as a character, he's actually not the nicest guy. No, no. I mean, putting aside the fact that he is stealing treasures from you know indigenous cultures around the world, right? It doesn't seem to really care about that. <laughs> to put in museums, but not just once, but twice, he chooses the Ark over the girl. Yes, that's a, that is a huge. That is a choice where most. If you're in a Hollywood meeting, they they say we need your character to be likable. He has to be a good yeah. Guy. And these are two choices which are great choices within the film. Right. Where he does the opposite thing. Marion is trapped. He's going to free her, and then realizes, wait, if I free you, they'll know something else. I don't get the arc. I'm going to leave you tied up. Yeah. To be tortured, to be killed, while I go get this thing, and then at the end of the film, he says. You know, give me the girl, I'll blow up the ark. He said he thinks he's ready to do it, right? But he's not. He can't. Nope. Well, this is interesting because I don't know if this is a product of the '80s, this kind of thing, or if it's just um, because the film is so lighthearted. 
uh, even amongst even with Nazis and yeah. the Battle of Heaven and Hell and the Ark of the Covenant, all this stuff that is in it. It's so light that he gets to get away with it, and we as the public don't call him out on it. Don't call Indiana Jones out, and he's actually very revered. People love him, and so as a character, and so if you do an analysis, analysis of him, you will find some unsavory characteristics with an unsavory choice. Because even at the end, all he's done is give given the arc to the american government and the american government is just another flip side of the coin of what the nazis are doing and i don't mean that they are as bad as the nazis i mean that their approach to the arc is the same thing they want to keep it as a possible power thing that they will use later how does indiana not know that this is going to happen and then when it happens he doesn't really fight that hard against it he just accepts it well he does suspect because <clears throat> at the beginning he says and we're going to get the arc at the end oh yeah 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 right, sure right um <clears throat> the the i think i think what you point out about indiana jones being not a scoundrel but single-minded yeah and he he is upset he has one moral structure and that structure is to bring antiquities to a museum yeah and the the, the and it's funny because belloc uh or beloche or whatever we want to call him yeah he point he's the one who keeps saying this about india he says your value and might are the same yeah. we believe in these treasures that's what that's what we care about mm-hmm. um and now belloc is willing to do more than indiana right but they're both they both have a similar value structure. Absolutely. And what I want to point out is that this is one of the great um, uh, mistakes about how people approach characters in film. Is yeah. that we think we respond to people because they're good. Yeah. That we like characters because they're good. But that is not why we like characters. We like characters because they are interesting. Yeah. Because they are compelling. Because they are filled with conflict and drama. Excellent. Just like, like we are. Yeah. Yeah. Is that is that is that if you look at, you know, and again, just because it's right after Batman and Superman, yeah. who's the more interesting character? The one that's more and more and easier for us to deal with is the one that's angry and violent and difficult. Yeah. And the one that's really good, we have a hard time with. Yeah. Yeah. We actually don't want good is hard. Yeah. What 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 makes our case you look at Harrison Ford in um Star Wars movies. Hansel is not a good guy. No, he's a scoundrel. He's a scoundrel who yeah. has a heart of gold, yeah. who, who overcomes his scoundrelness to do the right thing. Right. But if he was just a good guy, he would be Luke Skywalker. Right. You know. Right. And that and which character is the one that people love more? And the answer, it's very hard to be the main guy. Yeah. The supporting guy is an easier. You know, same with like, you know, Neo is not as interesting a character. Yeah. Who's just sort of the hero guy. You mean the Matrix? In the, in Matrix. the Matrix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you completely, and I think that's what's so fun. But I think Harrison is, and that's why you have to find the right actor to play parts like this yeah. because it can go so wrong if you pick the wrong actor. You know who and, the actor was supposed to play this? Yeah, Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck. And they had also gone out to Jeff Bridges, which is just oh, recently was in an interview. He said that they had offered it to him, and he turned it down. Jeff Bridges would have been interesting. <laughs> it would have been a whole other yeah. Indiana Jones. Completely. and I, Because that guy is more reflective than Harrison. So you'd have found a more reflective Indiana. There'd have been moments where after things, stuff, has, stuff has happened, he'd have like a lingering face on, and you would know there'd be more there. Yeah. yeah. The, 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 there's some about the gruffness of Harrison Ford yeah. that is so uh, fun. Yeah. Um, I want to take a second to talk about, you can't talk about any of these Spielberg movies without talking about John Williams. Oh yeah. The, the use of light motifs and the way he, uh, and, and to explain what a light motif is, it's a theme, mm-hmm. uh, that goes to a specific character or a specific plot line or a specific idea. And John Williams, he is the master. Yeah. And in this film that the first time we talk about the arc, you hear the arcs theme. Mm-hmm. Now, what does this arc look like? There's a picture of it right here. That's it.
good God. Yes, that's just what the Hebrews thought. Uh, now what's that supposed to be coming out of there? Lightning. Fire. The power of God or something. You're beginning to understand Hitler's interest in this. Thing. Oh, yes. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. And that each time it gets referenced, each time we see that, that uh, medallion, we hear the Ark's yeah. theme. You know, that, 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 that John Williams is weaving us through this. And of course, you know, Indiana Jones' theme is so rousing and so positive. You wanna, you, it makes you want to jump out of your seat. You know, I think about me as a 13-year-old kid watching it, and it's when that theme played. Mm -hmm. You know, that's when I was ready. I was excited. Yeah. Indiana Jones is on the horse, horse and we hear dun-dun-dun-dun. Yeah. You're like, okay. I'm into this film. Yeah, I mean, the first time you hear it is when he escapes from the indigenous natives yep. jumping into the water to swim out to the plane. And it's, it's just when you hear it is the perfect time to hear it because he's gotten away from all these. He's shown you his skills, his intelligence about traps yes. and wh what have you. And then so that when he's running, probably, probably one of my favorite, uh, another one of my favorite images of the film is him coming over that grassy hill, running his full head off. And then you see fantastic the, the indigenous tribe running after him. It's brilliant. And it's a funny. Shot. Yes, it's, it's very funny. funny. Shot. Yes, which doesn't disrespect the indigenous tribes at all. It doesn't make them stupid. It doesn't make anything. They're coming after him because he's assaulting a piece of their uh, their culture. And you can decide one way or the other how you feel about that. And then when he jumps in the water, you hear the score, and immediately the thing I love about the score, Steve, is it makes you feel like you're being taken on in a gust of wind somewhere. Yes. And that's what's so and you're going along with it, like you're 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 as cool as him, and it's so fun. The um. And let's talk about that opening sequence because yeah, sure. it is one of – I'm going to put it in the top five, top ten op introductions to a character of all time. Right, so without, I'm sure that's fair to any say. Question. Yeah. Um, if someone were to do a top ten show about <laughs> opening sequences in the film, that gets my vote for a very high number. Um, I'm sure that will be one of our topics so, someday. Because so, yes. as you say, you introduce this guy. First of all, it's a mysterious introduction. You don't get to see his face nope. until the whip draw. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, and the camera moves in. He moves out of shadow. This is, a, this is an unbelievably good introduction to a yeah. character. We see his intelligence, as you say. We see that he's learned there's mystery in it because we see him fill this bag with sand, but yeah. we don't know what he's going to do with it. Right. So you get the reveal of when he does it. Of like, oh, that's so cool, which is a great thing to do in film. Yeah. Is cleverness, get the audience intrigued by an action, and then you reveal the meaning of the action and right. you give the, the audience the satisfaction of getting it. But then it doesn't work right. Right. So at the same time you're building up as like, wow, this guy's amazing. You're also building up that he's flawed. Mm -hmm. And he never does anything. Indiana Jones rarely does anything with ease. Mm -hmm. Everything is hard. So when he has to jump over the pit, he doesn't leap over the pit. He runs, he slams it into his chest, barely makes it out. Yeah. You know, when he's running down the hill away from those people, he is not, it's not like <laughs> Superman running down no. the hill. It's not someone, it's not super graceful. Right. He's not, when he's in those fights throughout the movie, it's it's not that he's the best fighter in the world. No, no. It's that he doesn't quit. It's yeah. that he's tenacious. And then to cap the whole thing off, we get in the plane. And what happens in the plane? There's a snake, which he's scared of. So we've had this guy who's the toughest, coolest, most awesome guy in the world. And then he's freaking out about the pet snake, Reggie. Right. And, and so in, in addition to being a great character moment that sort of gives you a bit of comic relief, it's also a perfect plant for what's going to happen on later in the film. Absolutely. 
and yeah. and 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 the his uh, the pilot's reaction is great too. He's like, grow a spine or to get a backbone. And he's like, I've escaped all this stuff, yeah. and you're gonna give me crap about having a snake and being upset about a snake in my lap. There's a big snake in the plane, Jock. Oh, that's just my pet snake, Reggie. I hate snakes, Jock. I hate them. Come on, show a little backbone, will ya? Like you know, it's such a it's such a great uh, humorous juxtaposition of what has just gone before. Well, it's a perfect example of what we said. Is like Spielberg can't do a comedy, <laughs> yeah, but, but he can do a really funny yes, moment yes. in an adventure film. Absolutely. And then you have to add one thing. You have to add is after the next sequence. Now, where do we see Indiana Jones next? We see him in the suit yes. with the glasses. A complete transformation. Yeah. And you see the I love you on the eyelids. Right. And his discomfort with that. Mm -hmm. And we see this. He's a little bumbling and he's a little awkward. And now you get all these sides within the first, you know, 10, 12 minutes of the movie. You reveal this really fantastic character. Well, I think what you said earlier about the fighting, the the fighting, nobody gets their ass kicked better than Harrison Ford in films. Like, because he seems like an everyman, he seems like a guy you would love to hang out with. I don't think he's the guy you want to be and other, you know, other women love and guys want to, I think he's the guy you want to know. You want to have as your friend. You want to hang out with, and and I think so. When he gets his butt kicked, it's so uh, uh, relative to us because he's not some hero who's constantly punching and winning. He's actually losing most of the time, and then finds a way out because, like you said, he does not quit. Um, and then when you juxtapose the fact that he's the professor, the one thing I wanted to bring up was really funny. I found this out in doing research for the podcast. They actually cut a scene, the scene where. Uh, Den- Elliot goes to visit him at night in his place to tell him that they are going to prove him to go after the Ark. Um, he's in his oh, dressing robe or whatever he was wearing back then. And, and uh, apparently they, he was uh, escorting a young lady out. So he would have mm. been had had this whole idea of him being a player or being good with the ladies, you know. And I think the, the cutting was correct to cut that part of the scene out because we don't want to know that about Indiana because then that makes him a little more a little more difficult to access to make him just a regular guy who's focused on getting these artifacts getting the stuff and and going in on these adventures it makes it easier for the audience to connect with him i think i i, I i'm fascinated by that i hadn't heard that one yeah. and and it seems to me it's almost always true that when you watch the deleted scenes you go yep yeah right yeah, yeah. The right choice very smart and, and you can see why uh, by the way, script is by Lawrence Kasdan. Yes. Unbelievably great script. Yeah, Philip Kaufman and, uh, uh, and Lucas. Lucas yeah. from the story. Yeah. Um, and you can see why they might have thought that was a good idea. Mm-hmm. We're, in, we're introducing this swashbuckling character who's a badass with a whip, and he's yeah. got a hat, and he's got a gun, and he's a professor. And he, we know he has this relationship with a young woman, yeah. which is um, uh, Marion. Yeah. So, yeah, let's introduce that he's a player. We're, we're all – because all nerds love a player – uh, badass, whip-carrying, hat-wearing dude. Yeah, sure. And it made perfect sense. And I'm sure when they put it in the movie, they looked at it and like, no, this turns us against him. Yeah. We're not going to like that guy. Well, and then you I, cut it out. And I know that Spielberg. That has to be Spielberg. Because Spielberg doesn't shoot films about guys like that. Even Schindler, who was known for being a massive player, when you watch Schindler's List... He's cheating on his wife left and right in real life. There's only a couple of illusions. And when the scene happens, he is so charming within the scene that you are, you are um, as an audience, you are almost made to forgive him or to understand him because he's doing bigger, better things 
than cheating on his wife. And so you, your own personal feelings have to come in. Are you okay with that? You're not okay with that. But the way Spielberg shoots it, it doesn't let you feel negatively towards him for too long. And I think the same, I think that's, that's just inherent in him that he wants his characters to not be these kinds of people. Uh, he actually, it's so you can find little opinions, little points of views within his films, even the most, something like this, it's very adventurous and whatever you, you can feel his opinions about this. Spiel, Spielberg is, he's very pure. Yeah. You know, his, his outlook, we're not seeing heavy sexual things. No, no, no. They're not seeing deviance in Spielberg's films. Yeah. And even when you, you know, you get to huge violence like Saving Private Ryan yeah. or Schindler's List, it's still within a optimistic or wide-eyed or, you know, kind yeah. of perspective. Yeah. Um, the only exception to that that I can think of is uh, uh, you, Munich. Munich. Yeah. Very unsettling. That is a, that's a, that, I think that's an underrated movie. Yes. And it is really powerful and very difficult. You don't, un, unlike almost every other Spielberg movie, you can't walk out of that feeling, knowing what you should feel. Right. You know, you I agree know what you. you're supposed to feel at the end of Schindler's. You know what yeah. you're supposed to feel at the end of Saving Private Ryan. They're yeah. difficult. Yeah. But you go like, I know where I'm supposed to be. You end up get to the end of Munich and you're like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I agree with you. It's a, it's a very unsettling film because it's so well done up until that end sequence. You're, like, you're juxtaposing this, the uh, the save the save attempt with the sexual thing. You're just like, how it doesn't make sense. Do you know? So I, I think as he got, I think as Spielberg got later and later, there are missteps. AI is missteps as well. There are missteps throughout that film as sure. well. So this is the thing. You're right. I think what you're right. What you say, Steve, is correct. When he starts to go back to stuff, he doesn't always nail it because. He's not that guy anymore as right. he was when he was making those kinds of films at that time so well. You know, it's always difficult when you see Well, and this is one of the problems with Hollywood is people want you to be the same. Yes. They want they don't want us to grow. They don't right. want you to they want to go, okay, oh, you're a guy that does silly comedies. Yeah. Now do so and where we see it ends up that some really good films come from like Bill Murray. Yeah. You know, where it's like, Oh no, 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 I'm gonna do something else now. Yeah. And you find out that a person has depth or qualities that you didn't realize that they had. Yeah. I liken it to baseball. Like uh, for those who are listening, who, who watch baseball, know baseball. Like you, they, they will, Hollywood is like the manager of the team. They wants to know I've got a left hander in the bullpen. That's I right. can call in, and if I need to make money this year, or need to make this, if I need to win this inning or win whatever to get me to the next inning, so I can win this game, I need to put him in and plug him in and let him do his thing and put him in the right situation. But it doesn't always work that way. You're right. It's you. You've got to let. Artists are artists. They want to expand. They want to explore their boundaries or how far they can go with stuff. Uh, but not everyone likes to stay in their lane. And that's a good thing for the best artists, I think. You know, This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hello, Cinephiles fans. You know, we all kind of walk around with these stressors, big, small, medium in our lives that are triggered sometimes by frustrations at work or frustrations at our job or just frustrations overall about our life. Because sometimes you know this, if you compare, you despair and you just want to live a life that's a little bit more clean and accepting of yourself and a little more open to receiving positive messages for yourself so you can have that life that you want to live and have that great work-life balance. And it's not always easy. And for me, for years and years, I thought all of this stress, all of this hardship, I had to just carry on my own, that this is what it meant to be a man. And it was finally getting therapy where I realized like, oh, I don't have to carry that stuff. There's a place where I can unburden myself and actually get advice and guidance about how to deal with it better in the future. 
Yeah, Steve, you and I have spoken very proudly about how therapy has helped both of, both of us deal with our stressors in our lives. And if any of you are listening to us who are thinking of starting therapy, well, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you have to do is to fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if things aren't working out, which I think is a great benefit. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Cinephiles today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. Well, and, and, and <clears throat> I mean, because Hollywood is a business, yeah. they want predictable things that they can use to decide what's going to work next. Right. So they look at a thing that works, like Raiders of the Lost Ark. And this is why, by the way, I will put Raiders into my – it's probably in the top four great movies that ruined Hollywood, in my opinion. Wow. Yeah. Okay. The, the other ones being Jaws, Star Wars, and Die Hard. So, oh, so all the blockbusters, basically. Well, and, and you could see the transition from the Hollywood of the 70s mm-hmm. into Hollywood we have today through those films. You know, mm-hmm. Jaws being the first film that was uh, mass released. Yes. And that was, and it was what we would call a high concept movie, which means mm-hmm. I could explain it to you in one sentence. Right. You know, Shark is terrorizing this island. Um, and you can advertise it in a 15 second commercial and everybody goes to see it. <laughs> and it becomes the biggest selling movie of all time. Right. Um, and this is a reject. And then we get Star Wars, the classic adventure mm-hmm. film. Um, and this is a rejection of all the 70s maudlin, complicated, yes. personal, introspective yeah. auteur films. And they go, you know, they go, wait a minute, we can make this popcorn mm-hmm. movie and wait, make way more money mm-hmm. than all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And then by the time you get to Raiders, Raiders is the first true, in my opinion, nonstop action film. Yeah. Where you go from action sequence to action sequence to action sequence. Right. And, 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 you, the action sequences are gorgeous and yeah. beautifully made. Yeah. And that's the beginning, and this falls up with Die Hard, I think, where they go, oh, okay, instead of having our A movies be these star-driven, well-written, complicated, we want them to win Best Picture movies like yeah. Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge on the River Kwai. Or The Godfather. Or yeah. The Godfather. Right. Now our A movies are going to be what, in fact, had been the B and C movies of yeah. the past. Science fiction, adventure stories, you know, action movies. Um, that's the, the, the popcorn stuff that little kids would go to see. Right. But grownups wouldn't necessarily go to see because they're so terrible. Yeah. Now that's what everybody's going to see. Well, this is a great point you make, Stephen. As, as, you, as you're talking about it, it seems to ring very true for me, too, as a, as a study, of, study of the film and the film business. Because you look at this, and you're, you're right. And I think that's where the independent movement, movement movie movement in the 90s came as a reaction to absolutely it was absolutely all this all this tentpole stuff all this action or all this stuff like schwarzenegger stallone van damme all these guys that had come and become stars people were like wait a minute you know where what about the more uh the the, the smaller films the more character driven films the films that more explore explored the complexities of human life where are those films and that's what i loved about all those independent films and i gravitated to them like like a, a would like a bee to a to a to a flower like it just i had to know and watch as many as those as possible so i still have an appreciation of the blockbuster but it's an interesting thing you say like can you say that they ruined hollywood or were they just taking advantage of what was happening already in the medium and rode the wave because coppola didn't do that and this is fascinating because they all were together coppola lucas and spielberg were all around and scorsese were all like friends at that time 
and knew each other and their work. So Scorsese and Coppola did more of the more independent, more, I'm not independent, but like more of the character driven, right. grander films. And Spielberg and Lucas uh, went down the other path. And it's, it's interesting because I, because I feel like they were taking advantage of what was happening. It was the explosion of TV was becoming more and more accessible. Was, people were turning to TV more and more. CNN started in what, 84 or 82? So they were taking advantage of cable, all the stuff that was happening, HBO, all the stuff that was hap- started to happen. I think Spiel- uh, Lucas kind of saw it coming. Spielberg saw it and then took advantage of it. So, and the studios did as well. So it's fascinating. I, I'm sure that's a valid, absolutely valid point you're making. I'm trying to wrap my head around it. Well, well, I, what I would separate out is separate out the individual filmmaker from the from the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I don't think you know you can say, oh, Spielberg and Lucas, they saw this moment in the time and then chose to do this thing to fit in with where things were going. Right. But I don't think that's what it is. I think okay. they were making the movies they wanted to make. Right. You know, I think it's the fact is that the movies that they wanted to make fit in with where the world was ah, going to. There we go. Okay, yes. Is that, is that and so that's why I say it's like they're, yeah. they're, it's not bad movies that ruined Hollywood. Mm. It's great movies that ruined Hollywood. <laughs> I love those like I love all those indie films too. Yeah. My love for, you know, watching Sex Lies and Videotape doesn't affect my love for watching Raiders of the Lost Ark. Absolutely, yeah. Is I can love them both. Um what happens is and this comes from I don't know if you ever read Scott McCloud's great book Understanding Comics. No. Oh, it's awesome. So, okay. so the recommendation came out in the mid nineties. It's a textbook on comic books. Wow. Um, written as a comic book. It is charming and funny and okay. brilliant and insightful and definitely worth taking a look at. And one of the things he talks about is this great chapter called the six steps and it's the steps of the artist as they evolve in their work. Right. And one of the things that he talks about is when someone, the first thing that someone works on, I don't want to go, it would take too long to go into mm-hmm. the whole thing. The first thing they're working on is the surface. They see a thing, they try to do what they saw. Right. And then they go deeper through structure and craft and all these other levels to, to become the artist that they're going to become. Yeah. But then if they're successful and someone wants to imitate them, what they imitate is the surface. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at what Hollywood chose to imitate is that if you look at, for instance, the truck sequence, which is one of the great... Oh chase sequences Absolutely. every single detail every that at each stage indiana jones is being challenged mm-hmm. in different ways to do different things and has to overcome different obstacles and the storytelling is top-notch yeah and then what we get is all sorts of flat chase sequences mm-hmm. because oh. what they go is they go oh that truck sequence in indiana jones was so great right. let's do another chase scene but they don't understand the details yeah they don't understand all the little bits you know and there's so many action movies that they just keep ratcheting up the spectacle mm-hmm. they ratchet up the special effects they ratchet up the size of the sequence yeah. but they don't ratchet up the skill and the craftsmanship and the ideas behind the sequence yeah. that would make it really good this is a great point, man. I mean, we did on the Top Ten show, you know, for those of you who know me, I uh, host that show with Matt Nost. It's a great show. Everyone should tune into it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we Our first episode was Top Ten Car Chases. Oh, I remember. Because, because, uh, all because Fast and Fierce was coming out, but like also because it's very difficult to do, very difficult to keep the audience's attention, and very difficult to make it believable, interesting, fun, and uh, service the plot of the movie. And so that sequence you're talking about, the Razor Lost, it's an awesome, awesome sequence. And the, well, the way they do it is they put their hero in danger in a way that's, that's believable, but then also fantastical. Mm-hmm. You know, because the bending, the bending of the, um, whatever the grill, that, the, the grill and the logo on top, whatever that was that bends off of, and then sliding under the truck mm-hmm. all the way to, it's so brilliant. 
in almost impossible to do, yet it's incredibly fun and fits that 40s serial that they're doing homage to. That nothing can keep this guy down. He's always he always finds an interesting and inventive way out of the situation that is fantastical but still somewhat steeped in reality that you accept it. Well, this is the, you know, the term is to suspend your disbelief. Yeah. Is that of course if we think about that sequence, well that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, we right. can't do that. <laughs> but but the 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 clues that make it realistic, one of them is having Harrison Ford do some of the stunts. Yes. One of them is great stunt work, the way they shot it. This also goes to the, you know, this is obviously a pre-CG movie. Yes. So everything that we saw happened. Now, maybe there was a matte painting for, what, you know, the cliff or something like that. Right. But in general, everything we saw happened, and that allows you to suspend your disbelief yeah. much more. Once you go into the world of CG, where we know none of that actually happened. Yeah. It's harder to suspend my disbelief because I'm not the little things of the way the desk moves, the way the fabric moves, mm -hmm. the way someone's facial expression reacts to a thing right. creates the reality within which I can uh, accept yeah. this. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the end? This idea of opening the arc, then you see the speaking of the CG. This probably just this is the only probably CG that they have. Well, it's not CG. Well, what, it's animation. Animation. Sorry, it's yeah, not it's, computer. What What did you think of that sequence at the end there? When it When it happened, like, were you scared in the theater? Or was oh, it? I think when I was a kid, it scared me. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was scary. I mean, watching the faces melt and all that yeah. stuff. Oof. You know, and looking at it now, you kind of go, okay, you know, I can see the model <laughs> and the, you know, okay. yeah, right. It's still effective though. Um, Yes. I, first of all, it's extremely well set up. Yeah. Because you, um, at the very beginning, even in the, the scene with the FBI guys, where we're first going to find out about, which is, this is a classic uh, screenwriting puzzle, which is, that's a scene of full exposition. You have massive amounts of information mm -hmm. you have to get out in the scene. And how can we make this entertaining? And and, and, and they, they do both Kasdan and all the actors yeah. and Spielberg do a great job making it entertaining. But one of the things you find out in very subtle ways is that Denholm Elliott's character, Malcolm, yeah. believes in a mystical world. And that Indiana Jones doesn't care. Yeah. It's not even that he, he doesn't even bother to argue the point. No, and, th th and that's it's so not interesting to him. Yeah, you said, it's funny you bring that up because it occurred to me as I was watching it. I don't know why that line was always, had never affected me, but when I was watching it this, this today for the show, uh, he says, if you believe in that sort of stuff. He says, he says the whole the religion thing, and he says, if you believe in that sort of stuff. And I was like, oh, I've never, is he an atheist? Is he not an atheist? Does he not believe in this stuff? Does he think religion is mystical? And this is so, this is well, so and, interesting. And, that, and that, in the end, he doesn't really care. Right. That's what's, it's almost more interesting than being like, I am an atheist. Right. He's like, eh, I want to get the thing. <laughs> right. And he, he certainly knows enough to tell Marion to close her eyes yes. when it's happening. Right. The most profound moment to me, and maybe this is being a Jewish kid growing up, is when that swastika gets burnt off the ark. Yeah. And I think it's such an important moment in the film because we're in this, you know, in the way, it's like Nazis are classic cartoon bad guys. And they're used as classic cartoon bad guys. And they really are. They really are. They're and terrible that's shots. And, that's, they, yeah, and, they, and they're, they're dressed easy in to the beat outfits. Up. And, yeah. yeah. And, 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 we, and we don't have to feel sympathy for Nazis because they're just bad guys. Right. We don't have to worry about them as humans or yeah. anything like that. We don't have to know if they were forced to be Nazis or, you know, that they're doing this so they can feed their family at home to stay alive. Right. We don't, we don't need to know all that. Right. They're just bad guys. They're just bad guys. <laughs> but the choice that Spielberg makes as a Jewish guy, yeah. too, is that, well, the Jewish, the most powerful object in, in Jewish history which we know actually is mystical because the end of the movie right. is now has the most evil symbol of Jewish history put on the box that's oh, surrounding it. Yeah, interesting. And, that, and, and God, in the sense of this film, says, yeah. nope. Yeah. Burn that shit off. And that's like, a, that to me, watching that the theater was, 
Also, it's it's wonderful foreshadowing because that's the first moment where you go, oh fuck, yeah, there's something real here. Like right. this is not this is not just this is the real deal. Yeah, and there's really stuff in there. This is great that you point this out, Steve, because obviously I'm not Jewish, but you are, and you. It you, is you, obvious. Yeah, <laughs> you <grown> up. <laughs> uh, and you you've done you, like it's it's so fast because I try to tell people what it's like to watch certain things as a Latina. Sure, and a lot of people can't. Can't, you can't understand it, right. right? So I couldn't understand what it's like watching. Like aesthetically, I can understand. Like from the outside, I can understand racism or understand that kind of as a concept, right? But I can't understand what it's like to experience it as a Jewish person growing up in a Jewish faith. So to see that happening, how that would affect. Because I was reading one of the trivia things is that um, the last line they added in the film that they wrote was what Dietrich says when he says, I, "Do we have to go through this Jewish I mean, ritual? Yeah. It's a terrible ritual that he says to Belloc, and it's thrown in because they realized after they'd written the whole script." They hadn't put anything negative yeah. about the Nazis saying negative stuff about the Jews, rather. They hadn't put anything negative in for the Nazis to say about the Jews, and they threw it in as a line. And it's, it's true. It's the only line in there that even infers anything that they hate Jewish people. It, it, it's uh, the expression in the Hollywood expression with that is hang a lantern on it. Do you know this expression? <laughs> no, I don't know. It's a great, it's a great Hollywood expression. So let's say you're doing a movie <laughs> yeah. in which you have, like, you're doing the romantic comedy, and accidentally the two characters who most want to see each other in the world yeah. are both flying into change planes in the Chicago airport, and they happen to run into each other and it's the most ridiculous coincidence you've it could ever had so impossible right it's ridiculous and you know this writing the screenplay well the way to get the audience to accept your stupid coincidence is to do what's called hang a lantern on it which is have one of the characters say oh my god i can't believe i'm running into you in the chicago airport what are the odds and they go i know it's crazy and then the audience goes okay all right that's called hanging a lantern on it so okay. now we have this thing where Okay, we have this Jewish object, yeah. and we have the Nazis. We gotta hang a lantern on it. Yeah. We gotta make one comment to make the audience go, oh, okay. Yeah. And that's that. That's and that's what it felt like, yeah. too, when I'm watching it now. And I only read that after I'd watched the film. Yeah, I so, didn't know that. So it was watching it, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's the first time. It's, okay, that's odd. All right, so, so what you're saying when we go back to the covenant. I think, and this is what I thought was completely correct and believable and made sense to me. The Ark of the Covenant is an Old Testament covenant, is an Old Testament thing, right? Although it houses the new, it houses the Ten Commandments. It is an old, it's Old Testament, right? So well, it's got the Ten all Commandments the, are from the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, like the Ten Commandments are supposed to be about like good thing, you know, what to do to not to be a good person in the world, but. What is within that ark because of God's vengeance that we read about all the time in the Old Testament? It destroys evil. And so when the Nazis open it, when Belloc opens it, the fact that what's happening on the, in the film mirrors almost exactly what you see in that drawing when he's talking to the uh, FBI guys at the near the beginning of the film about the Ark of the Covenant. It's almost exactly the same image that you see. It's lightning you know these lights bolted uh, the gold power, the power of god yeah the power of god these gold lightning bolts going through the nazis that are standing there and then melting the faces off the three gentlemen and blowing belloc's head completely blowing it to smithereens yeah. and it's so interesting because you think something god-based wouldn't kill but that's a new testament approach whereas an old testament approach he does kill with impunity anything evil. absolutely yeah. A lot of nasty stuff in the New Testament, too, by the way. <laughs> I'm um, sure there are. I'm sure there are. Um, the, uh, 
<laughs> the uh, the other thing about it is that, is that it, it just because now we can analyze a little bit. Okay, yeah. who is God within the context of this film? Yeah, because he appears essentially. He, he does essentially and appear. makes a choice. Yeah, um, and one of the things I've always liked is that the Nazis think that by dressing up like Jews and saying some stuff in Hebrew, they're going to fool God. In order to think that they're Jews. Right. It's like, no, it's God. Yeah. He's pretty clear on it. <laughs> I also always wonder, too, and it's, it's beautiful in the film, and it's great, yeah. that, that because Indiana Jones knows that for some reason, like Lot's wife or whatever, yeah. we don't, if we see the thing, if we don't open our eyes, we're right. cool, right. that they're going to be cool, which means that in the context of the film, if he didn't know that, God would have killed him. Right. Um, which, again, I'm kind of like, really? That wouldn't be how I would perceive God, but it works great in the film. Right. You know, I right. would think God would be smarter than to... Oh, right, because he wouldn't kill Indiana. Yeah. Uh, because he's a good person, essentially. Even though he does some stupid, uh, assholeish stuff, he's still yeah. a, a good guy, essentially. Uh, in, within the context of how we perceive the film. Right, right. But why take the chance? That, to me, is what, what I perceive sure. that as. Why take the chance? Because Also, because... When you look upon God without his asking you to look upon him or it or whatever you want to uh, characterize God, the pronoun you want to use, I, I, I think you open yourself up to a world of, of whatever may happen. And why take that chance? So for well, me, and, when he closes his eyes, I think it's his way of saying, I don't want to die. Absolutely. You know, well, and this thing. is, you know, within the Old Testament, in multiple places, there are things about what happens when you see God. Yes. That Moses must take off his shoes because he's entering holy ground. Right. And that he sees the burning bush and that, that that's a transformative moment. Absolutely. You know, that these are, you know, the, and, and so, I mean, we don't want to go too far on this because no, no. it is a popcorn movie. Right. You know, like, I don't think we're going to take deep religious analysis out of it. No, no, no. But it is interesting that you, that you contrast the cynical dude with the actual true religious experience. Yeah. Which if you look at the next two movies because yeah. there only are two other movies as far as i know right um that same thing happens again and again <laughs> particularly in last crusade last crusade is was that your subtle way of saying crystal skull never happened is that again i'm not sure what you're talking about <laughs> okay all right that is the example of spielberg you can't go home again yeah and and and, and part of the reason we chose this film is now there's an, an announced fifth potential indiana jones yes movie. Written, unfortunately, well, listen, I don't want to say anything negative. I mean, David Kep is a, is a good writer, but people hated Crystal Skull. And I don't know why you'd rehire the same writer who wrote Crystal Skull to try and tackle this again. So it's just, it, it, it could be dangerous because people, people love this film, love this character, love, love Crusade. It, they're back and forth about Temple of Doom, but Raiders of Lost Ark and Crusade are, are pretty beloved amongst the Indiana Jones fans. And so what they left with Crystal Skull, it's scary to see what they're going to do next with this character because... What more can he explore at this point, you know? We haven't seen him be a professor. Have we seen him be a professor? In I don't remember him being a professor that much in Crystal Skull. Definitely not in... I mean, not in Crystal... I, I honestly have no memory of Crystal Skull. <laughs> I, and I'm not kidding. Okay, okay. Like, I was in the middle of shooting a movie then. That's when we were making oh, yeah. the assistance. Yes. And my one day off, I went, I'm going to go see the new Indiana Jones movie. And this will be my great way to restore... And I walked in, barely slept, working my ass off for yeah. months and months and months. And just was felt like my heart got ripped out. Right. And I literally ha I have almost no memory of the film at all. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I, I don't know if he, I don't believe he becomes a professor, but we see the so. return of Marion, which is almost wasted. And, and well, it goes to, I mean, and this is what's hard is when you become someone who yeah. is extremely successful. Yeah. Um, like Lucas and Spielberg is it's isolating. Yeah. And so, you, you know, what did they even think the reaction? Crystal Skull made a lot of money. Yeah. So maybe they just, and, and you do have to learn 
both of them have had to learn uh, to have tough skins yeah. and not listen to critics. My God, not, especially you know, after the prequels. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and so they go like, well, and, and honestly, again, we go back to the auteur thing. Yeah. We should let an auteur make the movies they want to make. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, there's a game that I've played sometimes of, and you and I have probably played it at one point or another, sure. which is picking people to be retired, which is, is to say, thank you very much for your service. You've done excellent work, sir. Here is a gold watch. Now, please go away. Um, and George Lucas is certainly one I've retired. I, but um, I don't want to retire Lucas just yet. I can't be in that camp because I do think, I do think there's one or two movies left in him that we could enjoy. Like I think don't he know has. Why you would think that? I think he has to have a redemption story at this point. I mean, he has like. You mean that if our life was actually a Hollywood mo movie, that this character of George Lucas, of Lucas. would have a redemptive? Moment? Yes. Well, it sounds is, nice. This is because I am a sports fan. And I always, uh, I, I, there are the occasional athletes that have the redemptive sports story. Look at Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning had the sure. four neck surgeries. He came back the last three years. He really led his team. Now there's all these, you know, possible rumors about HGH and all this kind of stuff, but he led his team to the Super Bowl and they won the Super Bowl. It was the defense that did it, obviously, but he was a game manager and he got to go out on top. And so for the last three or four years, people said he was a good quarterback, but he couldn't win the big one. Right. And so, uh, you see, so Lucas, I think there. I think I think if if this Star Wars property expands as I hope it expands to where there's a network where there's you know a, a different movie every year, I think the time will come as we get further and further away from the prequels and as the prequel characters become part of canon and part of the new trilogy. I think, uh, or in the in the one-offs, I think people will start clamoring to have him do one more movie in the Star Wars universe. So so let me just counter that with for every Peyton Manning story, there's a story of an athlete that stayed too long. There's 30 stories of yeah. athletes that stayed. Willie yeah. Mays, what yeah. have you. you Kobe, even Kobe now. Yeah. yeah. Kobe, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Is that and the thing is is that I would contend that George Lucas <laughs> Sorry, should I not use the word contend? No, I love this. Let me let me posit that <laughs> That George Lucas is not Peyton Manning. Like, like if you look at him as a, if you look at him as an idea guy, ah, he's one of the great idea guys of all time. I yes, believe. his he, he, his and, and and a design guy, his wonderful taste in design, yeah. his wonderful ideas. As a director, he has directed. So he does. It's THX, a very good point. You he say does THX, which is a really I would yep. say a, a fascinating failure. Yep. You have uh, American Graffiti, which is a wonderful film, mm -hmm. but I don't go like this. Oh, THX 1138 is what right. you're talking about. Yeah. Okay, yes, THX yes. 1138. Yeah, not, not everybody who's listening to Sorry. us might know all the... Sorry. Yeah. His, yeah. First, his first film, Out of Film School, yeah. is a very strange science With fiction. With Robert Duvall, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's sort of an old school science fiction Yes, film. it is. Um, and then it's really slow and boring, but yes. it looks beautiful. And then you have American Graffiti, yes. which is a, a wonderful film in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And you have Star Wars, and then that's it for him as a director. Um, it's not a long career as a director. And, and if you watch, like, if you watch all I the think behind Steve, the scenes. All right, Steve, you, okay, you make sense. Like, if you watch the behind the scenes of Star Wars. Yeah. And you watch, like, a perfect example okay. is Princess Leia's character. When she gets introduced, she has a British accent. Yes. She says all this highfalutin stuff that's not very good. And if you watch the behind the scenes, you can actually see actors laughing about Lucas's terrible dialogue. Yeah. You know? And and he apparently couldn't talk to actors at that time. Yeah. He was very shocked. Harrison said this, yeah. Um and and then there's this moment where Carrie Fisher ceases to speak in the British accent and she starts to say these really funny things. Yeah. That's Carrie Fisher. Yep. 
You know what I mean? The, and the, the great things. I'm not saying that Lucas deserves no credit for, no credit for Star Wars. Right, right, right. He's the director. He wrote the script. He de- deserves the lion's share of the credit. Of course. But without Marsha Lucas, his wife, who was the editor, without John Williams, without yeah. Harrison Ford, without Carrie Fisher, without uh, Alec Guinness, without you know uh, James Old Jones. Yeah. Like I don't know. It's it's Star Wars is I know we're. we're I, we might be a little bit close to our end to put it here, but uh, the Star Wars is a fascinating thing because obviously I host the Star Wars podcast, and so it's right. uh, which I do at Jedi Alliance over at After Buzz Popcorn Talk. Plug, plug, plug. But um, the thing that's fascinating about the Star Wars uh, uh, approach is when you link it back to Raiders, like. Yes, Spielberg is the one who directed this, but Lucas is the producer of the film. Right. And uh, had a hand in the script. Absolutely. Uh, and I think I think where Carrie Fisher, the way she's built, as an independent, fierce, pushback type of person, um, forced Lucas to create a different Leia. I think Karen Allen didn't have the same kind of gravitas or personality to push back against Spielberg and Lucas to make Marion less of a damsel in distress and more of a kind of smart talking. Cause she has the moments where she's smart talking yeah. Indy. Cause when they first meet, she is definitely the dominant and Indy is the submissive. But by the end of that, that's sequence, how they were in bed too. Yeah, hello. But by the end of the sequence, <laughs> you know, cause she's mad that he'd left her and whatever. And she said like, essentially it seems like she was a student and he took advantage of her as a TA or as the uh, being taught by her father. He took right. advantage of her yo- as a youth, a younger woman and whatever. And she says that. Indiana Jones always knew someday you'd come walking back through my door. I never doubted that. Something made it inevitable. So what are you doing here in Nepal? I need one of the pieces your father collected. I learned to hate you in the last ten years. I never meant to hurt you. I was a child. I was in love. He was wrong and you knew it. You knew what you were doing. Now I do. This is my place. Get out. By the way, yeah. looking at that moment with today's eyes, yeah. it's really messed up. That's what I'm saying. It's yeah. so it's it's so fun to do the to go back and watch these films now because you struggle against the 2016 more advanced progressive person versus what I'm watching in the eighties going, Why didn't I pick this up? Why didn't this occur to me? And, yeah. and, and even when I watched it again and again in the 90s or in the early 2000s, why didn't this jump out at me? And I, I like doing that because it, it's films are films are well, the great thing about films. And I think we both love them and which is why we're doing this podcast is is uh, they capture a moment in time in the pop culture right. zeitgeist. And then it's fun to watch that and go back and see how we've progressed, but still not necessarily denigrate the films because that's just who we were at that time. You know, I think you I mean, like to me, you always have to be of two minds and you have to appreciate it for what you're going to appreciate. Right. You know, so if you're, you know, watching Merchant of Venice and you see the portrayal of the Jew of Shylock, Shylock, yeah, you know, you have to go like, okay, you know, this is 1600. But then you also listen to Shylock's speech, not a Jew eyes, all the I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Um, But but you listen to it and it is one of the most profound really is speech of the underclass of the other saying, Mm -hmm. hey, I'm a human being. Mm -hmm. And so even within the context of a a play where we would look at today and go, that's kind of anti-Semitic, it also contains this jewel of humanity. And so it's like, you got to be able to you got to be able to as as a watcher film you're just going to watch the movie yeah but when you're analyzing the film you got to go okay let me pull this apart a little bit mm-hmm. and put my brain i'm going to accept the fact yeah that yeah this is kind of sexist um and still appreciate what's really good about it right and the fact is is that marion at that time is a pretty powerful strong unique woman yes 
you know. Yeah. And, and this is a great point you make because if you look at the old Bond films, there's a lot of – you could say now in 2069s, there's a lot of sexism in those Bond films. But then – this is what was interesting about Spectre. Spectre, to me, was going back to those old school Bond films. And the women, it was, it, yes, you could say absolutely it was sexist. These women fall in love with him that are half his age and what have you. But it's just, it's just, um, it was just going back to that time, but unfortunately, in 2016, it's very difficult right. to go back to that time because people don't let you go back to that time. And but something like this, because it was uh, so revered when it first came out and so beloved and everything like that, you kind of give it a pass because it is a reflection. And plus, it's set in the 40s. Well, so, and, and, yeah. and you know, I always think one of the problems we have is that we want to make a movie symbolic for a thing, and that that movie has to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. How is Raiders of the Lost Ark solving sexism? Yeah, really. It's like, yeah, right. That's not the purpose of this film. Yeah, absolutely. What you do, what you need to do, is you look at all the films yeah. and say, "Wow, we got a real problem here." Yes. You know, the problem is not that a male character rescues a female character in a film. Right. The problem is that all that's all we see. Yes. Is that over and over again, and it becomes a cliche. Right. And cliches are bad for film. Right. And bad, obviously, for society. Because we're seeing, we're reinforcing this same take on men and women over and over and over yeah. and over again. Yeah. So it's like, and this is why, you know, this is somewhat off the topic, but, you know, if you look at uh, the people that run Hollywood and the filmmakers, it's all dudes and largely white dudes. Yeah. And so, and, and people like to tend to like to work with people that look like them and think like them. Yeah. And so they continually reinforce the same pattern over and over again. Mm -hmm. The key is to get, not to get rid of the guys, right. but to add the women and the people of color mm -hmm. and the people from different groups so they can start to tell their stories so that instead of having these guys rescuing girls over and over and over again, yeah. we get something else. Yeah, but and, and you could say about Raiders, and this is what's so fun about Raiders, is that every time that she is in peril, she finds, she finds her way out. Like, she does find her way out, and it's, it leads to comical situations. The stuff in the plane, when she shoots the Nazis, she kills like 10 Nazis right. with the machine gun, right? But it's comical because she can't open the hatch to, op to get, to, you know, Lainey's got to shoot the hatch out to save her. So they're saving each other all throughout the whole film. But her, her, her method for doing it tends to be accidental. Yes. Or something which is beyond her control. Comical. Yeah, you know, yeah, comical. yeah. And if you look like to, if you look at Temple of Doom, yeah. that style is taken to the nth degree. Yeah. Where you have Kate Oh Kate, yes, uh, Kate Capshaw, yeah, yeah, yeah. Her, she's just, you know, Right. Really dumb. Right. And, and one of the, that's one of the knocks on the film. Well, it's fascinating because the, the, uh, she was supposed to be initially in the first script for this film for Raiders. She was supposed to be a Nazi spy. And they oh, ended really? up, you ended up yeah. using that in Crusade. The same right. idea. They ended up coming back to it in Crusade, which is great. Yeah. Don't throw away your old ideas. <laughs> no, you just never know when they're coming in. I've done that all the time. Like, <laughs> oh, I can you finally use this? <laughs> I've had stuff from like 20 years ago. Yeah. Where I go, um, oh, I'm doing, you know, in fact, I just, the, the, the script, the script I just finished. Oh, okay. It's an idea that literally I had the first time in 1993. Wow. Yeah. And it went through and it just was in the back pocket. Right. And then I finally went like, oh, now it's time to write, write a version of that connected to all this other new stuff. Well, they, they, um, they did Raiders, like they came up with it. While they were vacationing, right. Lucas and Spielberg waiting for the returns to come in on Star Wars. They did it. Apparently, they came up with the idea over a sand building a sandcastle on the beach, which I and men did that in the back then in, the, in their in their later years. Different time. It's very strange to me now. But like, but uh, the time was um, both sexist and more endearing. Yes. <laughs> but their idea. 
That's great. Their idea was to he wanted to do a James Bond film. Spielberg said he wanted to direct a James Bond film, and and Lucas said I've got a better idea because he had apparently in 1973 he had come up with this idea right. for doing uh, kind of Raiders Lost. So it's this well, so, and this so goes back to what we were saying about Lucas. Yeah. Is, is oh, that, his idea, man. Yes. Is that he and a great and a mm-hmm. great um, uh, manager of talent. Yeah. Of of he shouldn't be the guy directing this movie. That guy's Steven Spielberg, right? But Lucas knows how to 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 feed him good ideas, to help him when he's kind of off the track, right? You know, and this is the thing. You know, if you've ever directed a film, it's a very lonely job. Mm-hmm. You're all alone, and you really need someone who can kick your ass occasionally. Yeah, yeah. someone's got to be able to. And this is actually. In fact, the problem with George Lucas as a director mm. in the prequels is there's nobody to come and say, no, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're that's off track true. now. Not good enough. That's true. The number of times, one of the things I've learned in my, you know, as I, in my 30s and 40s yeah. is that I would write a script or show a cut of a film and then someone would rip it apart. Yeah. And I take my stuff really personally. Of course. And I would be upset and angry and how dare they. I right. try not to show it because I, I'm not, you know, I don't want it because it's inappropriate. Right. Then I can't sleep that night and I'm upset and they're wrong and they don't understand me and they're stupid and they're rude and they're not supportive and they're not my friends. And I'm really pissed off. And then I get up the next day and make the thing better. Welcome to the life of a creator. It's terrible. And what I realized, it took me until my mid-30s where I went, oh, I have to go through that. Mm -hmm. I have to go through that emotional. I have to go through that dark night of the soul. Because the thing that I thought was great, it actually wasn't great. Right. And even if the comments I got from the person were wrong. Yeah. The, the anger and the emotion and all that stuff drives me to yeah. improve the product. Right. And so Spielberg having Lucas, you know, or Carrie Fisher challenging Lucas on right. Star Wars. Right. You know, or, or, you know, it's not like Irving Kirshner went and directed 20 great films. Right. He directed Empire Strikes Back, which is an unbelievably great film. Absolutely great film. You know, so that's. And was, and was Lucas's teacher. Right. Right. And so Lucas brought him on and like took it out of the DGA because they wouldn't give him credential. So Kirshner did it on his own I'm, with Lucas supporting him. I'm yeah. still waiting for one of my students to come along and give me <laughs> Empire Strikes Back. Well, who knows? Who knows? Uh, do you want to talk? Yeah. We, I guess we're, we're, are we at, we're at end of time. Yeah. yeah so what, what do you do? You have anything you want to wrap up on this? Yeah. Just that uh, it was so great to revisit the film. And I'm excited to do this uh, podcast with you because I think we have an easy rapport about film, and we've had numerous discussions over the years that we've known each other. We've had much less to drink this time. Though. Yeah, well, that's true. I'm right? far good. more sober than these conversations. I'm sure are. there will be times when we will do <laughs> late night ones over some vodka or, or, or bourbon or whatever. But but I, it was so fun to revisit because it's it's a film that's it's a great film to start with because it's something we both absolutely love. It is in the top 100 films ever made according to AFI, and it is one of Spielberg's top 10 films. Absolutely. No question and about it. You could even argue top five, really. You could, in some lists, I'm sure it would make top five. And it's, it's, so, it's the beginning of Harrison. It's really the solidification of Harrison Ford as a major movie right. star. And um, I think the film is so much more intelligent than people give it credit for. It's not just a fun adventure film. There is a lot going on here. There's a lot that's explored and explained with the culture, with the mythology, and with the idea of the artifacts and what it's... Is is he colonializing? What is he doing? Has he done the right thing by finding the Ark? Because he ends up giving it to the government, yeah. the American government, to hide in some warehouse to possibly use as a last last gasp uh, weapon to save our country. Who knows? But there's so much more going on hidden underneath this amazing romp and so amazing adventure rather and it's so much 
it was so much fun to revisit it for this. Yeah, I, I, it's you know, art is always a tough thing to talk about because we go like, well, what is what is it? Right. But craftsmanship isn't. Yeah. And Spielberg, maybe above everything else, is one of the great film craftsmen. And shot to shot, all of the cast and script, the performance, the music, everything about it, the way the film is cut together yeah. is just pristine. Yeah. You know, there's certain films, you know, it's a filmmaker trick or a film student trick is to go through and watch the film with the sound off. Watch the film. Yeah. I, I like to watch, just listen to the soundtrack, just listen to the sound effects. Yeah. And, and, and you can appreciate it at every level this film has done so well. Yeah. And, and, and the storytelling, because Steven Spielberg is such a good storyteller, one of the all-time favorite moments. It's set up in uh, the scene with the FBI guys. Oh, a staff, it's just a stick. No one knows how high. Yeah. Now, the no one knows how high is a perfect plant. Because this is an important information. How high is the stick? Then we go to, we see the thing, and we see the Nazi guy. What's his name? Is it? Uh, tote. 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 Okay. Yeah. Tote, burn his hand on the thing. But yeah. We don't on the medallion. Because it yeah. it's just a great moment. Yes. Uh, we don't think of it as a plant. Major and, Arnold Tote. Yes. And then we hear, oh, they actually are building. They figured out how long someone got it. How did they get it? Right. Now, when I'm watching that movie the first time, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of a throwaway. Then we get to the old man. The old man says, oh, you have to take away one kadam, yeah. which is the height, and to make it in, in honor of the Hebrew God. So they realize the Nazis are building the wrong place because their thing only has one side. Why does it only have one side? The guy re-enters, says, Heil Hitler, opens up his hand, and you have this moment that's built on all these little pieces. Yep. And you have this reveal that is one I remember in the theater going, ah, and screaming. Right. That is classic Spielberg construction. Yeah. And, and this movie to analyze is it's endlessly fascinating. Yeah. It, it's a very tight film, man. Yeah. It's so much fun. Uh, uh Okay, well, I think uh, I think we've now come to the end of our first cinephile. Yes, uh, we dug in pretty deep. I think so too. Yeah. Um, where can people? Where can, if you want to? Yeah, I guess because Steve. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, well, this is my first time ever announcing, but my yeah, hosting, my yeah. uh, Twitter address is at sr morris. Yes. Uh, yeah, and is there the do you have, uh, the assistance is what available on Netflix oh, sure. if you, you want to watch it? You can see the assistance. It's on iTunes. Yeah. Um, hopefully, we're gonna get that Great White Shark doc to the U.S. Right on. Uh, and uh, and you, sir? Yeah, uh, you can follow me at the Roca says R O C H A. That's my homage to The Rock. Um, I'm hosting shows on the Collider Network. I do recap shows, and I'm on Jedi Alliance over at Popcorn Talk. If you want to do Star Wars, and I'm and I do the Top Ten Show on the Schmozno Collider uh, Podcast Network, and I'm excited to start this adventure with you and see where it takes us. Me too. We got to figure out what the next movie is going to be. Yes. 